Leviticus, it's a book that, okay, let's be honest. When you're, when you're doing your yearly Bible reading and you, you're committed, right? And this is going to happen in a few weeks. You're going to say, I'm going to write, read through the whole Bible this year. I didn't do it last year, but I'm going to do it this year. And you're going to start off in Genesis and then, oh, this is so cool. And Exodus and yeah, there's some parts in there, but then you get to Leviticus and you're just like, ah, oh, never mind. You know, and you just kind of, you've done it before, right? I mean, you've gotten to Leviticus and you're like, this is just so strange and, and just bizarre. That's actually kind of the point, actually, that it's strange and bizarre, uh, because God is strange. Um, we'll talk about that in just a second. But, I, I mean, I was thinking, our conversation this morning in the sermon, we talked about how we tend to think that the Bible is about going to heaven when we die. Um, and, and I don't want to disparage that to say that it doesn't have anything to do with our eternal life or life after death, because of course that it does. It has everything to do with life after death, but that's not everything that the Bible is about. In fact, you could read a good, huge portion of the Bible, especially beginning at the beginning and read through, and you're just not going to find a whole lot about that. I sat down the other day and read through Leviticus. By the way, it only takes about two hours, you know, maybe three or four if you get distracted, but, you know, just read through the whole book. And I read through the whole book, and guess what? There's absolutely nothing in there about where you go when you die, you know? Not that that's not an important question, because it is, but that's not what this book is about. Um, that's not why they were doing what they're doing. That's not why God told them to do what God told them to do. And I think that anytime we talk about life after death, we have to remember, you know, this is a big thing with the New Testament, so it's a big thing with me, that, that the Bible's emphasis about life after death is about the resurrection, right? We're going to go somewhere when we die, and for Christians, that's going to be a good, wonderful place. Uh, for those that aren't Christians, it's not going to be wonderful. But then Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be a day of resurrection. And that that really was the question that people in Jesus' day were asking. What's life in the resurrection going to be like? Is there going to be a resurrection? Is there going to be a moment when God keeps all of his promises to all of his faithful people that have died, right? I mean, all of these faithful covenant people of God have died over the, the centuries. Is there going to be a moment where, where death's chains on them will be finally broken and sin and death will finally be defeated and destroyed and God will keep forever his promises to all of his covenant people who have ever lived. And Jesus's resurrection is the affirmative answer that absolutely that day will come. But what is the book of Leviticus about? You know, one temptation that we have when we read it, because a lot of it is about um, sacrifices. And in fact, if you were to like keyword the whole thing, and you're like, okay, what are the repeating words in the book of Leviticus? Uh, fat comes up a lot, like fat of animals. Um, entrails, that, that's a big one, entrails. Uh, blood, that's a big one. Uh, priest, actually, priest, maybe not as much as you would think, uh, given that the English title of our book is about the priestly tribe. Um, but yeah, so priests and sacrifices and entrails and blood and all this stuff. And, and our reaction usually, and I'm just going to, because I haven't heard anybody here say this, okay? But, but usually our reaction when we read this is, I'm so glad we don't have to worry about that anymore, right? You've probably had that reaction. You read it and you're like, man, I'm so glad we're not under that testament anymore. I'm so glad we don't have to worry about that anymore. 
That's not actually the gospel. The gospel is we do have to be concerned about all of these things, but Jesus is the one doing them for us. Jesus is the one not just doing them, but having had done them, and it's complete. We have a priest who has offered a sacrifice once for all. So should we be concerned about having someone intercede on our behalf and offer a blood sacrifice for us? Absolutely, we should be concerned about that. And Jesus has done that for us. You see, Leviticus teaches us the kind of questions that we ought to be asking. We we have good questions and all of our questions about God and eternity and what's the meaning of life. I mean, all those questions are good questions, but they may not be the best questions. Do we ever stop and think about that and say, God, teach me the questions that I ought to be asking? See, sometimes we don't even know enough about God to ask the right questions. I loved uh, Bentley's prayer just a few minutes ago about how God has revealed to us himself in nature. We talked about this in Psalm 19 this morning, didn't we? God has revealed himself in nature, but more, I love the way he put it, more specifically in his word. He reveals himself to us so that we know something of God's nature, so we can begin to ask the right questions about God and what it means to be in a relationship with God. So let's not approach Leviticus and say, I'm glad we don't have to worry about that anymore, or I'm glad that's not how we worship today. Let's not take that approach. I mean, obviously, it's not how we worship today. and We're not offering entrails and blood and fat. Okay, we're not doing that. But, but, but it was pointing towards Jesus, it's a beautiful chapter. As we talked about this morning, it is a beautiful chapter. I know it's a book, but yeah, a chapter in a story that's pointing forward to Jesus, right? It's this beautiful story that's pointing forward to Jesus. But if we don't appreciate it for what it is and the story that it's a part of and what it's saying to God's covenant people then and God's covenant people now, then not only will we not appreciate it and we'll get to it and we we'll say that's boring and we'll kind of skip over it or gloss over it, But more importantly, we won't appreciate Jesus the way that we should. We won't appreciate the gift that we've been given. And think about, my mind's just kind of going 90 to nothing. That's nothing new, I guess. But, um, but I mean, imagine if you, you all do such amazing jobs. Every time I talk to somebody here about the job that you do and what you do out in the marketplace, it's like, once you get past like the first sentence, I'm lost. I have no idea. It sounds so complicated and whatever it is. And maybe something that you work with in your job, maybe it's technical, maybe it's some piece of hardware or whatever, or maybe the job that you used to do or whatever. And somebody gave you one of those things, whatever it is you work with, and you understand it and appreciate it. And so they give you that. You're like, whoa, I can't believe it. It's the latest model and I can use it. I can think of all these ways to use it. But if you gave it to me, I don't know what that thing is. And I'm not going to appreciate it like you would appreciate it because you understand its intricacies. You see, sometimes that's the way it is with the gospel. The gospel is so big and so awesome that when we first get it, when we first receive it, we're like, oh, wow, cool, saved, awesome. I like that. That sounds good. Not really sure what that means or what I'm being saved from, but okay, cool. I like that. But the more you understand about who this God is that is saving us and what exactly he's done for us, the more you're like, wow, I had no idea. I had no idea how precious that gift really was. And if we never go beyond that surface level of I'm saved and I'm going to go to heaven when I die, 
If we never go beyond that and we never look deeper than that and appreciate more than that, it's not that we're not saved, but it's that we're not going to appreciate what we've been given. And we're not going to be living it out because as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, that's what we're supposed to be doing, isn't it? Is living out the truth of the gospel. So um, the Hebrew word, and I think there's a slide on this, um, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm sure, but vaikra, vaikra. That is the Hebrew name for this book. Now, see, what we've tended to do over the years, it's not wrong, it's just interesting, um, or I think it's interesting, you may think it's boring, but anyway, I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, but but the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, the Septuagint, right? We have the Greek translation, that was kind of the Bible of Jesus' day, was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, but But we've tended to take the Greek titles and the Greek descriptions of these books, like Deuteronomy means second law in Greek, or the second giving of the law, um, and Leviticus has to do with the tribe of Levi. But in Hebrew, Vaikra is he called, the first phrase in, in the book, he called. And that's a beautiful phrase, that's a beautiful idea of what this book is about, he called. He called. From the tent of meeting, he called Moses. The Lord called him. So this book is about God, a holy God, inviting a people to live with him, to dwell with him. They're at Mount Sinai, and they're about to go into, well, eventually they'll get to the promised land. And once they get there, and and on the way there, they've got this tent, this tabernacle, where God is tabernacling with them. We, We get that same idea in John 1, right? That Jesus came and tabernacled with us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But here, this holy God calls. Vaikra, he calls. He calls a people to himself to dwell with them, to take up residence with them. A holy God is inviting people into his presence. And this book is about how this people are to go about living in the presence of a holy God. And see, again, we don't know the right questions to ask because we don't even know there's anything to that, right? I mean, if somebody says, God wants to have a relationship with you, we just like, well, duh, you know, I'm pretty awesome. Of course God wants to have a relationship with me. God loves me. You know, we all know that, right? God loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. And this time, and knowing what they knew, sounds pretty radical. God wants to live in the same space as me. God wants me to live in the same space as him. God wants us to have a relationship and dwell together. I could be in God's presence. I can be in God's presence without dying. How can I be in the presence of God? That word holy and I want to spend a lot of time thinking about that word, not just tonight, but as we go throughout this series. When we think of holy, usually we think of, I could ask you, but I, I know that's not going to work very well to have a discussion back and forth. But, um, but, but what does holy mean? We usually think of moral purity, don't we? I mean, I don't know. That's what I think of. I don't know if everybody else thinks of that. Moral purity, being good, right? Holy means be good, right? And so when, when the Bible says, and Leviticus says it a lot, actually, I'm holy, be holy, right? My people, be holy, be a holy people. We're told the same thing in the New Testament. 
Be holy for he is holy. And we think that that simply means be good, right? And and that's part of it. That moral purity is part of it. It's certainly part of this book. It's the idea of God. But it isn't that God is being good. It's not like God is on good behavior, and that's why he's a holy God. It's that goodness is good because it describes God. God defines what is good. And holiness is so much more than just moral purity. It is that, but it's so much more than that. That's really a a small part of it. I really like this idea. John Piper said that holiness, well, understanding God is like being in a little boat, okay? Picture the world like it's flat and there's water pouring off, you know, the edge of the ocean. I know it's not really like that, but picture the water is falling off the edge of the world and, and you're in this little boat, and you're kind of exploring, and you get all the way to the edge where all the water is coming off the edge. He says, the word holy is like the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibilities of language to carry the meaning of God eventually run out and spill over the edge of the world into the vast unknown. In other words, we don't have the right words to describe God and say, who's God? Who is the God? Who is Yahweh? Tell me about him. Well, I mean, what can I say about He's holy. And that that word holy gets us about to the end of where language could take. We could say he's good and God is love and God is jealous and we could use all the words. And, And then to get us to the very edge of anything we could possibly put into words, we could just say, well, he's holy. Holiness carries us to the brink, and from there on, the experience of God is beyond words. The reason I say this is that every effort to define the holiness of God ultimately winds up by saying, God is holy means God is God. The very godness of God means that he is separate from all that is not God. There is an infinite qualitative difference between creator and nature, or and creature rather. God is one of a kind in a class by himself in the sense he is utterly holy. But when you have said no more than that, he is God. God is the absolute reality beyond which is only more of God. When asked for his name in Exodus 3.14, he said, I am who I am. His being and his character character are utterly undetermined by anything outside himself. He is not holy because he keeps the rules. He wrote the rules. God is not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. Holiness means otherliness. It means different. It means unique. It means beyond. It means what you're not. God is other. God is otherly. Separate. Different. Isaiah 40 and verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Anything you compare to God? You say, well, God is kind of like this. Well, maybe, somewhat, in some sense... But in many other senses, he's not at all like that. God is otherly. Fire. It's a good metaphor, isn't it? And and it's a biblical metaphor for God. 
It's it's different. It's unique. It's otherly, isn't it? I mean, what is like, especially, I know we'd say, well, electricity is kind of like fire. Okay, hold on. Go back in time, right? Go back in time and say fire. What else is like fire, right? Nothing is like fire. Fire is fire. It's different from everything else. Nothing else is like fire. So let me ask you this. Is fire good? This means yes. This means no. Okay. Is fire good? Yes, right? Is it dangerous? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Because if I asked you, can something good be dangerous or something dangerous be good? You might be tempted to say, no, usually dangerous is dangerous and good is good. But no, things can be both good and dangerous, right? Fire is good. It's life-giving. It's warmth. It's protection. But it's also, if you don't know about it and you don't respect it and you don't understand it and you don't treat it like it's something to be treated with respect, then it will consume you. You know, we often say things like, God can't be in the presence of sin. I've, I've always said that. God can't be in the presence of sin. We say that, right? We say God can't be in the presence of sin. Uh, that, that's almost true. But it's more like sin can't be in the presence of God. You say, well, Wes, you're confusing. That's exactly the same thing. It's really not, though. Think about it for a second. If I said fire can't be in the presence of paper, that doesn't make sense, does it? Fire can't be in the presence of paper. That makes it sound like if there's paper around, the fire is going to run away. Oh, no, I can't be in the presence of paper. You know, I mean, but it's not that way at all. It's the opposite, isn't it? Paper can't be in the presence of fire. Why? It'll be consumed. It'll be burned up. You don't get paper close to the fire. If you've got your fireplace going at home, you don't set a stack of newspapers there, not because the fire can't be in the presence of paper and you're afraid the fire might get put out by all the paper stacked in front of it. It's the opposite, that your paper can't be in the presence of fire. And the same is true with God. God is holy. He is, he is different. He is unique. He is good. He is awesome. I, again, holy can't, I mean, it's when we get to the edge of language, there's no, no other words that go beyond what is holy. It's just, he is so much different. And you see, one of the major themes of Leviticus is unclean. Unclean. And that's what humanity has become, hasn't it? Since the, the, the time in the garden, when, when man ate of that fruit, they became unclean. And unclean ones cannot be in the presence of the Holy One. It isn't that God can't be in their presence, it's that they can't be in His presence without dying. So really, even though God is the life giver and God is all that is good and to be in his presence is to live, if you're unclean, to be in his presence is to die. The the most gracious, merciful thing that God can do for an unclean person is push him away. Because if he's in his presence, he will be consumed. He will die. You cannot be unclean and come into the presence of God. It's like a piece of paper. It's like, it's like we've become little paper people and we're trying to come into the presence of fire. You can't. Not without dying. If you're unclean. Now, as this book goes on, I mean, there's all kinds of things that make a person unclean. Some of them are moral impurities. 
And some of them are just natural impurities, things to do with life and sex, bodily emissions and dead bodies and just different stuff. And, 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 and there's things that you could do accidentally or things you could do on purpose that are just part of the natural life and you're unclean for a day and you can't go into God's presence. But that's what this book is about. It's about how can a people be made holy so that this people can now live and dwell in the presence of a holy God without dying. It's phenomenal, isn't it? But it falls short, doesn't it? I mean, you read it and you're like, this is good. I mean, this holy God. I mean, mankind was banished. They were away from him. They were dying. And God said, I'm going to, I'm going to redeem a group of you and I'm going to bring you back into my presence. I'm going to go into the land with you. You're going to dwell with me. I'm going to dwell with you. You're going to live. There's going to be life. We're going to hang out together and have relationship. But, it, but it's like, yeah, but. During this time of the month, I can't come into your presence. Or if my relative dies and I bury him, I can't come into your presence. And if this happens, I can't come into your presence. If I accidentally touch this, I can't come into your presence. If I eat this, I can't come into your presence. Ah, man. It's still something is wanting. Something is lacking. And again, the good part of it points forward to Jesus. And the bad part of it points forward to Jesus. The good part says, hey, wouldn't it be great? If this could be available to everyone, and the the shortcomings of it say, wouldn't this be great if one sacrifice was offered to take care of all the impurity, all the uncleanness, forever? So that the whole world, that all the nations, could live and dwell in the presence of God. Wouldn't that be be spectacular? And that's exactly what we have in the good news. So, this unique God... Vaikra, this unique God calls, he calls Moses, he calls his people to leave, live in his presence. God makes arrangements for these people to be purified, to become holy, and he encourages them to live holy lives. Live lives that are different. Live lives that are unique. Live lives that are separate. In all of the the ways of don't do these things, but also do these things, right? Do these good, amazing things. And we're going to get to a lot of those things. But some of it's like, take care of the poor people when you get to the land. When you when you harvest, you know, you got your field and and, and you go to harvest your, your land, don't harvest all of it. Leave some of it for the people that don't have anything. And when there's strangers in your land, sojourners, foreigners that are living there, Take care of them because you know what it's like to be one of them. See, all of this is about holy living, isn't it? To say, if I want to live in the presence of God, if I treasure being in God's presence, this is the kind of life that I'll live. So let's look at one text and then we'll close. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 3. we really are barely just going to get started, and then in or next week we won't have a class because it's Christmas Eve, and then the week after that is New Year's Eve, and so back it, it'll be January next time we get to this. But I hope that this has piqued your interest so that in like three weeks you'll come back. So <laughs> Leviticus 26, I have to tide you over till then. Uh, 26 and verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, see, and it's, it's conditional, isn't it? It's conditional. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, 
Then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall uh, last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I'll give you peace in the land. And you'll lie down and none shall make you afraid. I'll remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before the sword, fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I'll turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. That all sounds good, doesn't it? It's, it's going to be good. You're going to live and it's going to be peaceful and it's going to be wonderful. I mean, obviously some poetic language being used, but this is the best part. Verse 11. I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God. And you shall be my people. You see, that's what we have in Jesus, church. Yes, life after death. Yes. And yes, especially the resurrection. Especially the resurrection. Without the resurrection, it's short-lived, whatever it is. But in this life, do we see Jesus came? And when he came, he didn't say, hey, I'm only going to be here for a little bit, and then I'm going to depart, I'm, I'm going to abandon you. In fact, he said the opposite. He said, I'll, I'll never leave you. I'm, I'm going, but I'm going so that I can send another that can dwell with you. Right? The Spirit of God has taken up residence in us. In God's people, all over the world, we are the temple of God. The presence of God has come to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us, always and forever, because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made. And that's what this book teaches us, is that a sacrifice has to be made. Blood has to be shed to reconcile people, both the Jew and the Gentile, to himself, so that God can dwell with us, and his soul will not abhor us. And he'll walk among us, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. Here's an outline of the book. I know you've probably got your phone, so if you want to snap a picture of that, I'll duck down so you can get... Um, but I, I really like this. I got this from the Bible Project. Um, I like the way that they outlined it. Um, the first seven chapters, so chapters 1 through 7, and then the last few chapters, 23 through 27, um, deal with rituals. Uh the second section and the sixth section, this is almost like math, so no, that's probably not even right. Um, so, so yeah, the second and the second to last, uh, 8 through 10 and 21 through 22 have to do with the priesthood. And then the third and the fifth sections, 11 through 15 and 18 through 20, have to deal with purity laws. Both purity, like things you touch and things you do, and, and also moral purity. And then right there in the middle, we've got the Day of Atonement and some other stuff. Uh, but we've got that cent- central section and then kind of building out. So there's kind of a, a cool symmetry to it, you see. Um, but all of it has to do with how can paper people, unclean people, become solid people? How could unclean people become clean people, pure people, holy people, to live with a holy God? Because God is good and God is dangerous. We need to know that, huh? Both. Because some of us think God's not good. But He is. 
And the story of the Bible that he invites us into teaches us just how good he is. Beyond anything you could possibly imagine, he's better. But he's also dangerous. You cannot live in his presence without a sacrifice. You cannot dwell with him without being made holy. You cannot be in his presence without someone purifying you. We need Jesus. So this book, as well as the whole Bible, especially the gospel, is about this phrase, I will make my dwelling among you. And that's what I want us to walk away with. God has made a way so that he can make his dwelling among us. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Lord, we are incredibly thankful to be here tonight to dig into your word. Father, you are so good. And Lord, it is a fearful thing to fall into your hands. Lord, we thank you for forgiving us, for purifying us, for making us holy so that you can make your dwelling among us through what you have done through Jesus. We thank you for your spirit who has taken up residence in us that we might be your temple, that we might be your people, that you might be our God. Father, help us not just to die with that confidence, but to live with that confidence. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for becoming flesh that we might have a priest and a sacrifice for all time, for all people. And Lord, it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen.